All right, just to review. Wait a minute. How come that's not on? There we go. Okay, just to review some of the key things that are coming up. Uh, we have uh, to pray for Jeff Phipps and his uh, team down in Brazil, and they began a pastor's conference, I think it was today or yesterday. I can't Yeah, today. So we need to pray for Jeff, and also we need to remember the schedule coming up over the holidays that on Christmas Day we have a uh, our normal schedule, 1030 worship service, but it will be one that is focused upon the occasion uh, of Christmas Day, and I have begun a short uh, Christmas-oriented message on the prophecies uh, related to the Messiah. So that will continue this Sunday and then on the 25th, and then we'll return to Ephesians probably on the 1st of, uh, of January. There's no special New Year's Eve or uh, New Year's Eve recognition or celebration or any anything like that. And also prepare for the congregational meeting coming up in February. And if you're not a member and would like to be a member, then uh, uh, you can let one of the deacons know and find out about that. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. There have probably been at least 10,000 things happened to you during the day when you got out of fellowship, not walking by the Spirit, and so you need to make sure you've recovered and can focus your attention upon the teaching of the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just so thankful for your grace. We have such a difficult time understanding it, and we have as much of a difficult time applying it in terms of our own behavior, our own relationships, and the way in which we treat people. But we need to dwell upon the realities of Romans 5.8 and John 3.16, that you demonstrated your love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, when we deserved nothing, when we were in open rebellion against you, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins and to give us a free gift of salvation simply by trusting in him. And, Father, we are forgiven of all sins positionally, and that goes beyond anything that we can ever ask or think. Father, we're grateful for your grace, and as we study tonight, we'll see different aspects of your grace in history with Israel 
and we see that that applies to the church. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things this evening, that as we look at a sort of a big picture of uh, how you dealt with Israel, that you will use that to uh, bring to our minds the application with reference to our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we are back. Seems like it's been a rugged three or four weeks with uh, pre-trib last week, which was good that we canceled because I didn't go to pre-trib and was still dealing with this uh, very bad cold that's been going around. Uh, but I am feeling very good now and so uh, thankful to God that I was able to get the right medical attention from my doctor and get past this. So we are in Judges, continuing our study in Judges. That verse reference up there is wrong, should be Judges 13.1. That we are looking at sort of a big picture uh, tonight as we get ready to go into the 13th chapter. We have, I think we have four chapters, 13, 14, um, 13, 14, 15, and 16 four chapters on Samson. That's a large chunk of the of the text in Judges. And Samson is not the hero that often childhood Bible stories make him out to be. Unfortunately, there are, as I pointed out before, too many who use Hebrews 11 to interpret Judges but that's not interpreting judges. That's just saying that these are all men, and it's just a great example of grace, all men who failed miserably in much of their leadership and spiritual life. But at one key point, they trusted God, and so for that, God praises them. That has always been uh, a tremendous encouragement to me, that that the, it's the, expresses the depth and the breadth of the grace of God towards us, that we do not uh, deserve it at all. And so I've titled this class tonight God's Extended Grace and Inevitable Judgment and Restoration because that's what we see happening again and again in the history of Israel is that that as I pointed out many times Israel the history of Israel's corporate Israel often stands as a sort of a type of the Christian life a picture of the Christian life, that they fail again and again and again. God reaches out to them in grace. God forgives them. He restores them. They fail again and again. And it just goes on. And with Israel, ultimately, God has to uh, take them out under divine discipline in the Old Testament with the Assyrians in 722 and the Babylonians in 586. But there's always the promise of restoration. There's always the promise of hope. God never turns his back on his promises. He's always faithful, no matter how faithful we might be. And so that's what I want to uh, look at a little bit tonight before we get a little bit into the first verse. We've seen this pattern of the deterioration of positive volition in the book of Judges. Again and again, we see this word that they forgot God or they abandoned God, they turned their back on God, they are committing treason every time they do this because God is their king and they reject God, they abandon him and they turn to demons 
uh, as Deuteronomy 32 says, the idols are empowered by demons. And so they are into every time they or we succumb to some form of idolatry, whether it's open physical idolatry or whether it's just the idolatry of mental attitude sins, or the idolatry of false priorities, then we're committing that same kind of thing. There's only, you know, we've always talked about divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, but human viewpoint is just the devil's viewpoint. It's Satan's viewpoint. And that's the world system. It's Satan's viewpoint. And if you don't believe that, just get up in the morning and watch, you know, national news for about three hours, if you can stand it. And that ought to convince you that uh, the Bible is right, that there is such a thing as total depravity. And it's alive and well in the world today. Never have we seen uh, in our lives or in the lives of our immediate ancestors so much going on. I mean, the evils of, of, of the Holocaust are one thing, and World War II, and that was horrific. But there are different forms of evil, and the form of evil that we are seeing today is going to lead to another Holocaust eventually, and that will be in the tribulation, and that will make the Holocaust under Germany in World War II pale in insignificance. So what we have seen is that there's this deterioration with each of these six cycles with the judges, they, the nation is mired more and more into their negative volition, and they are becoming more and more like the Canaanites. And as we get into this last cycle, we're going to see that it is distinguished from the previous cycles in that for the first time, the nation does not cry out to God for a deliverance. Uh, there is no recognition of any kind of turning to God. There is um, uh, no deliverance. Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, but he's not the last judge in the period of the Judges. The last judge in the period of the Judges is Samuel. So the, the historical period of the Judges overlaps into the beginning of First Samuel, and Samuel is the last of the uh, last of the judges. The last, and he, Samson, Samuel, and Jephthah all overlap, and we'll look at some of those chronological details uh, a little later on. But we see the negative side in the book of Judges. We see the consequences. There are positive uh, pictures, though, and I talked about those at the end of chapter twelve and also at the beginning of chapter, I think it was chapter 10, where you have these snapshots of these what are called minor judges. And what they portray is that there were times, and in some areas of, of, of Israel, where there was, um, uh, there was stability and there was some prosperity, and God blessed the people. And we often, when we read through Judges, we think that these are chronologically successive and that these in invasions are cover the whole nation, but they don't. The Ammonites, as we've seen in the maps, occurred in the area across the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, the Transjordan area, and they did not uh, 
take over as large a territory as the Midianites had under Gideon. Midianites came in across the Jordan, and they uh, took control of the Valley of Megiddo, and that was where they were eventually defeated by Gideon and his people. But that didn't really affect things further down in the south, um, and so that was something separate. When we get to this section, we've seen Jephthah, and he was prior to and overlapped with Samson, and that he delivered the people from the Ammonites coming in from the east. But at the same time, the Philistines are pushing up from the southwest, and God raised up Samson in order to cause all kinds of disruption for the for the Philistines. So we're going to be looking at that and coming to understand what was happening with Israel spiritually is they have so compromised with the thinking of the religious systems of their day, which I spent a lot of time going over, that all religions other than biblical Christianity reject the creator-creature distinction. And so they go back to worshiping the creation and the creature rather than the creator. And so they just want to compromise. They want to live and let live. They want to have peaceful coexistence. And they really don't want to fight with the Philistines. They want to get along with them, and they want to adopt their culture and their um, uh, religious system. But God's not going to let them get away with that. He says Samson, not because Samson is a great spiritual hero, because he's not, but he is just going to cause a tremendous amount of disruption so that the uh, the Israelites cannot reach a compromise and assimilate uh, with with the Philistines. Now, before we get into Judges 13 or the beginning of it, I wanted to take a little pause because I want to set the stage of what's happening spiritually by looking at Jeremiah. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11. Now, there's a lot I could talk about and summarize in the first 12 chapters or so of Jeremiah, but we don't have time to really go through a a lot of that. But if you think about the broad time frame, the period of the Judges follows upon the conquest. You have the exodus in approximately 1446-1447 BC. You have 40 years in the wilderness, which takes, which takes them down to about um, 1406 BC. You have the conquest that takes about uh, six or eight years, and that takes you down into the very beginning of the 14th century. So you're looking at the period of the judges coming the peri- covering the period from roughly 1400, the end of the uh, the end of the conquest. That's where Judges one begins in its summary, and you go from 1400 uh, down to the time of Jeremiah, the time of the destruction of the of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah in 586. So roughly you're covering a period of about 500 years, and that's a bookend on the kingdoms of Israel uh, before the, the Babylonian captivity. And 
all through this time, you see the same repetition. You see the same cycles. You see the same uh, failures with regard to idolatry and especially the idolatry of the uh, pagan fertility uh, religions. And so to understand a little bit about what is going on at the beginning of Jeremiah, this is a little bit of a, of a timeline here. Jeremiah began his ministry under the young king Josiah. Josiah was the last of the eight good kings in the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And so he began his ministry approximately 627 B.C., and then he is going to warn about the coming of the Babylonians, the destruction of the Babylonians, Babylonian captivity, and he will be taken to Egypt afterwards. So I have the timeline here just from the beginning of his ministry to the fall of Jerusalem in, in 586. So this is approximately 41 years of ministry, but it went on um, once he went, went down to Egypt. And this is... Uh, uh, we want to understand the the patterns that took place during these 500 years, and so when you just if you just read and properly understood the book of Judges, you would think by reading it that that it's not long before God is going to bring down the fifth the fifth stage of divine discipline and take them out of the land. He's done all of the other things that he outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, except for the fifth cycle. And so you just think this nation is going to absolutely collapse, but it's the intervention of God's grace. When you look at the period of the judges, there are some wonderful things that happened during the time of the judges reflecting God's grace. You have what happened during the period of these minor judges, for one thing. And on the other hand, you have it, the episodes in the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place during this time of the this period of the judges. And Ruth is a Moabitess. There's a, a, a family a couple that moves with their two sons to Moab to get out of the uh, danger zone in Israel, probably during one of the uh, periods of oppression. And one of the sons marries uh, marries Ruth. And then the the father dies, and then both sons die. So the three women, Naomi the mother and Ruth, are left as as widows. But God is going to provide deliverance for them through a kinsman redeemer who is Boaz. And Boaz is a picture, a type of Jesus Christ, uh, showing that in, in, in Mosaic law, that if you have a woman who is widowed, then there can be a relative that can come and marry her and raise up children to the honor of the father who is deceased, and he is the one who takes care of her. But he needs to be a, a kinsman. And so he, this is what Boaz is. And so Boaz is going to uh, marry Ruth, and she becomes the great-grandmother of David. And David is God's gracious gift to Israel uh, in the Old Testament. We are reminded that by the end of the last judge's life, when Samuel is an old man, his sons are recalcitrant, they are rebellious, 
they are rejected uh, by the elders of Israel as as proper leaders for the nation, and so they reject uh, Samuel's judgeship and they uh, ask Samuel to give them a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. And so uh, Samuel takes it personally and gets angry about it, but God tells him they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They rejected God, just as they had through this whole period of the judges. There was no king in Israel. And so they rejected uh, God as their king, and God in his grace is going to give them the king. But God is a God who doesn't necessarily give us what we want, but he gives us what he knows we need to have. And sometimes that's not very pleasant. And he gave them first Saul. Saul was not the one that he knew would be the uh, progenitor of the Messiah. Saul was from the tribe of of, uh, Benjamin. And so he gives them Saul. Saul started well, but he ended badly. And he rejected the Lord, and he his rebellion against the Lord was identified as uh, witchcraft. That's what uh, Samuel said in confronting, he said, the rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And see, rebellion against God is always connected to some form of, of demonic activity, either the thinking of Satan or actions of Satan, either covert or overt demonism. And so God gave them a lesson of what they don't want that they had to learn what a bad king was and that by wanting to have a king like everybody else, they were at really asking for something that w- would lead to their self-destruction. And after giving them Saul, then God in his grace gave them David. David was not a king they deserved. Uh, Saul was a king they deserved. Just like we have had several presidents over the course of time that, that we may not have liked very much, and they are, uh, but God gave them to us. And we have one now that is a lesson in uh, where paganism takes us. And paganism leads to the destruction of the soul. And we have a president and an administration that is uh, hell-bent on destroying the soul of the nation as fast as they can. And their lack of activity in protecting us at the border is, is just being a traitor to the Constitution. And it's sad because we get to sit on the sidelines and we get to watch a Congress and an administration that, for the most part, are failing in their sworn oath to defend the nation and defend the Constitution. And so they should all be uh, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And that's that's not just my opinion, but that fits the facts. But we don't care about the law anymore because we're just like Israel. We're antinomian. We don't care about absolutes. We no longer believe in right or wrong. We just believe in, um, you know, just keeping our space stable and not being bothered, assimilating with everybody so that everybody is right. But if everybody is right, nobody's right. And you, that just leads to total, uh, total self-destruction. But what we have in David is the ultimate picture of God's grace and his goodness to undeserving Israel and undeserving mankind because David is one of the best pictures of what the coming Messiah will be like. David was a sinner. He sinned in many, many ways. Uh, he committed murder. He committed adultery. He committed a conspiracy to cover up the murder. 
but he never turned to idolatry. And so several times he is identified as a man after God's own heart, even though he sinned egregiously. Not only did he sin egregiously, he committed capital crimes that were worthy of death under the Mosaic law, and God commuted that sentence because of his grace. And ultimately it was because David did not turn away from God, did not abandon God, and did not turn to idols unlike his son uh, Solomon. Solomon was sw- started off good, ended badly, just like Saul had, and he turned away from he turned turned away from God because he was enticed by the pagan women that he was attracted to and that he married in violation of the commandment in the law that the king was not supposed to uh, multiply wives. But God was gracious, and he gave David a covenant. Now, how many individuals can you name with whom God made a personal covenant in the Old Testament? This is a pop quiz. Okay, number one is who? Noah. Specific covenant with Noah and his descendants. Number two, Abraham. Abraham with Abraham and his descendants. Number three, Phineas, the covenant of the priesthood, often overlooked. And then number four is David. Those are the four that he gives a personal covenant. And the covenant with David promises that uh, the Messiah will come through the line of David. He is the progenitor of the line of the Messiah. And so... That's, that is a tremendous act of God's grace. And then what happens is as we go through the following centuries, these years from Solomon becomes uh, king around 970 roughly. I don't know, the, I don't remember the exact date, but it's approximately 970 something BC. So this is now from 970 down to 586 is about 370 to 400 years before the uh, southern kingdom of Judah is taken out under discipline. But because of Solomon's failure, there is a tax revolt among uh, his uh, heir, with his heir, Rehoboam, who is the king of the the last king of the United Kingdom? But almost immediately, there is a tax revolt by the ten northern tribes, and so they split off. They go into apostasy. Uh, Jeroboam the first recognizes that he can't send all of his people down to Jerusalem during the three feast days when all. Uh, adult males are required to go to Jerusalem because they're going to the capital of now an enemy nation. And so uh, Jeroboam sets up his own alternate religion. He sets up a golden calf in the south at Bethel and the north at Dan, and he identifies this golden calf as the God who delivered them from Egypt. So he's rewriting history, and he is introducing uh, a, an idolatrous apostasy into the nation. The northern kingdom doesn't have a single king who follows the Lord. Every single king after Jeroboam is identified as following in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They all follow in idolatry. But there are several different dynasties that take place, 
And about the third dynasty that comes in is the dynasty of Omri. Omri was a general who overthrew the previous king, and he is the father of Ahab. And Ahab is going to marry Jezebel, and through Jezebel he is going to bring, uh, restore these fertility religions back to Israel. Now, they had been sort of... um, uh, on the back burner, there were still people who would have worshipped at the Asherah and ba- Baals during that that time, but they were uh, they were probably few and far between during the time of David and maybe during part of the time of Saul. But when um, uh, but when the um, when you get to the point where uh, D- Solomon Solomon has died, you get to the point where. Um, uh, Ahab becomes king, and he brings in Jezebel and all of the the priests of Baal and Asherah. Then what happens is you have uh, the introduction, reintroduction of all these pagan religions that just increase uh, sexual perversion and all manner of things in the northern kingdom. And it gets worse and worse and worse until God finally has to discipline them through the invasion of the Assyrians and the Assyrians completely uh, destroy the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and that left just Judah. Well, during the course of Judah's history, there were eight kings that obeyed the Lord, that they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, when Scripture says that, then you know that they were obedient. They were not... um, that, that doesn't mean they were perfect. That doesn't mean that everything they did was correct, but they followed the Lord to the best of, of their ability. And the last of those kings is Josiah, and it's during his reign that Jeremiah comes on the scene with a message of com- the certainty of coming judgment. And so the period of the judges foreshadows these cycles that will continue to take place all through the history of Judah. So I just want to go through the first uh, 11 or so verses of chapter uh, chapter 11 in order to point out a few things. It starts off the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So when he says hear the words of this covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, and he is reminding the nation of the blessings and the curses that are part of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, this is another pop quiz, the Mosaic Law was given to whom? It was given to Israel. Only Israel, from the period, from the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai until the cross, only Israel is expected to obey the Mosaic Law. God never held Gentiles accountable for the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was not for Gentiles. It's not for the church. It's not for uh, the church age. It was limited to God's people under the theocracy of Israel. It's the law. So you have to understand the wholeness of the Mosaic Law. The preamble are the Ten Commandments. The preamble is the Ten Commandments that are given uh, at the beginning, and then you have various uh, parts of legislation, some of which relate to civil, some of which relate to criminal, some of which relate to ritual legislation. And so God is going to remind them, because the last part of the law of these kinds of uh, 
what are called suzerain vassal treaties that were common in the ancient world at that time is the last part contained the blessings and the curses. That if you keep the covenant with the king, then he's going to do these good things for you. But if you violate the covenant, if you break the law, then God's going to do these bad things to you or that the, the great king is going to do these bad things to you. And so you have the blessings and the curses. That's how they're normally represented. But it's not a curse uh, in the sense that we think of with uh, primitive black magic or shamans or witch doctors. It's a judgment, the judgment of God as a result of disobedience. So God says, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it's directed to the Judahites. Now, remember, a lot of folks from the northern kingdom had fled into uh, Judah uh, when the Assyrians were invading to the north. And this is what God says that he is to say to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. Now, that's nothing new. That goes back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that the, the Israelite that does not obey the law is going to come under divine discipline, divine judgment. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God. Now, the Mosaic Law was not a way to salvation. This is their this is their constitution. But the key is they are to obey God. It's mentioned in verse 3. It's mentioned again in verse 4. And then there are uh, both blessings and uh, consequences. Uh, verse 5 that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. So the focal point here is the promise of a land. The other part of this is the that which begins the covenant. A lot of people think a sacrifice begins the covenant. As a result, they have a lot of trouble when they come to what the Lord said when he institutes the cup at the at the Lord's table and says, this is the new covenant of my blood. They think that his sacrifice started the covenant, and that's wrong. Where's, what's the, what, what, what is the sacrifice for the Davidic covenant? Quick, there is none. It's not the sacrifice that puts the covenant into effect. What do we see here? that I may establish the oath. When you have a couple that comes together to get married and they're standing before the pastor, and what are they doing? They're making a vow. They're making an oath that they're going to keep the covenant. That's what sets a covenant into place is the uh, enacting of the oath. So God says that, that they are to be obedient, that I may establish the oath, which I have sworn to your fathers to give them the land, the key is understanding the focal point that a nation has to have a people, a constitution, and a land. And so the focal point here is is the land. Without the land, there's no nation. So Jeremiah said, I answered and said, so be it, Lord. Then the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. So it's a reminder of their legal responsibilities under the Constitution given by God at Mount Sinai. 
And God then says, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. See, God's a morning person. He rises early. Verse 8, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. What's he talking about? Notice the connection. He gives the law, and he says, obey, and the next thing that happens, which is what happened historically following the conquest, they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. That's another way of saying everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a tremendous summary of what happens in the period of the judges. And on. They did not follow, uh, they, they did follow the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers. And who's that? That's the generations in, in Judges. Who They turn back to the iniquities of their forefathers who have refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods. Deuteronomy 32 says these other gods are demons. So they're rebelling against the Yahweh, the Creator, Redeemer, and they are turning to Satan and the demons as their gods and goddesses. Um, They've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. So what we see throughout uh, the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah are these various indictments by God of the nation for how many times they continue to, to disobey him. Now, when God lays this out and he talks about bringing upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them. He's talking about the judgments, the cycles or stages of divine discipline that are outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And so I thought it might be helpful for us just to be reminded of this because when we go back and we read through the stages of divine discipline, and also the promise of blessing, because we can't separate God's grace from God's judgment. See, that's what liberals did starting in the, probably as far back as the 17th century. But they start questioning how can this, how can God be a good God when he treats his people so harshly? So the, they would, they would separate Old Testament from New Testament. And look at the God of the Old Testament as its evil, harsh, wrathful God. And that the God of the New Testament is a loving God. And what they do, once you take away accountability uh, out of love, then you destroy it. And that's exactly what liberalism does. They have a fake view of love. So God does promise blessings in Leviticus 26. Uh, one and following, he says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I'm going to do certain things. And I just thought I'd put together a few verses here to hit some of the high points. He says, I'll give you rain in its season. The land, notice the focus on the land. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. 
I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I'll rid the land of evil beasts. Isn't that interesting? That how, how when you think about it, there's a cause and effect here that is not such, is not a physical law. God is saying, if you walk in obedience to me, then these destructive, ravenous predators that are in the land will go away. Now you can't you can't make that happen by um, and figure out what the cause effect is according to some physical law. It's a spiritual reality, and so many people who look at history and try to analyze the trends of history and what causes this and what can we, you know, let's quantify what we can do to produce prosperity and what we can do to prevent depressions or recessions. They totally miss that there's a spiritual element to all of that in history and that God rules on the basis of of those overriding uh, principles. So God says, I'll give peace in the land. You'll lie down. None will make you afraid. I'll get rid of the uh, ravenous animals. You'll chase your enemies, and they'll fall by the sword. It's not based on how skilled they are militarily. It's not based on their military technology. They defeated the Philistines, even though the Philistines had weapons of iron, and they didn't when God was with them. Because the issue is God. The issue is not how great your technology is. You'll chase your enemies. They'll fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And we saw an example of that, Gideon's 300, putting to flight the Midianites. Uh, you'll ch- um, your enemies shall fall by the sword before you, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply you. Now, that's an important thing. We read past that too quickly. God says that one sign of blessing is that there is going to be an abundance of babies. And the flip side is going to be true. That if you're disobedient in the cycles and stages of divine discipline, there's going to be barrenness. Now, that's important because when we start into uh, Judges 13, one of the first things we run into is that Samson's mother is barren. And we'll look at the role of that barren women play in Scripture. They don't always play the same role, but with with um, Samson's mother, the issue here is she's representing Israel that is spiritually barren at this time. And you see the same thing with Hannah at the beginning of of First Samuel, First Samuel one. She represents the people who are uh, spiritually barren. So a couple of things that we need to remember when we look at the five cycles or five stages of divine discipline. Number one, these are only for Israel. They are not from anybody else. Some people I've heard say, well, the United States may go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. No, they can't. We're in the church age. Get out of the Old Testament. There are maybe similarities, there may be patterns in the collapse of nations and civilizations, but the Mosaic Law was given between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah, period. Nothing in the Mosaic Law has direct application to any nation outside of Israel and to any nation in the church age. There may be implications and similarities, but that's different from application. Okay, so nothing in the Mosaic Law, including the cycles of blessing or the cycles of of discipline, 
uh, are relevant to Gentile nations or to nations in the church age. And if there are similarities, uh, it's only in the sense of implications. But when you look at certain nations across the board uh, that have been defeated many times in battle and overrun at, at times, they're still there. France is still France. Germany is still Germany. Japan still Japan. Uh, they've been defeated, those nations, because these the fifth cycle of discipline is all about what? Pay attention when we go through them. It's all about, I gave you the land. I gave you the law. Because godly people get to keep my land and keep my blessing. But if you're going to disobey me, I'm going to kick your butt out of the land. It's all about the land. It's all about God's promise to Israel. God didn't give a piece of real estate to anybody else, not even Texas. They're the only nation in the world that God has promised a specific piece of real estate to. And you have to interpret things in light of their context. You can't just go over to France's constitution and say, well, I like this law. Of course, you can if you're a liberal judge. But you can't go over to France and say, oh, I like that law. Let's just apply it right now to what we're doing in the United States. You can't do that. But that's what a lot of Christians try to do. They go back to the Mosaic Law and try to make it fit today, and that's just wrong. So what are these five cycles or stages of discipline? Cycles indicate something that goes cyclically. Stages indicates that, that they intensify over time. And that's really, I think, a better word. Leviticus 26.16, God says, the verse before, he talks about, if you have disobeyed me, then I will do this to you. Verse 16, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain. It doesn't matter how much your technology does. It doesn't matter what kind of fertilizer you use. It doesn't matter how carefully you do everything. You're not going to grow anything. You shall sow your seed in vain, and for your enemies shall eat it. That's what happened with the Midianites, right? Every time the harvest came in, the Midianites swept in and, and stole all of the grain and everything that was produced and took it away and left the Israelites just enough to eke out a living over the next next year, and then they did it again. God says, I will set my face against you. I don't want to hear God say that to me. That's not good news. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated. Not you might be, you shall be defeated by your enemies. Now, this isn't because they lack technology. It isn't because they lack trained men. It's because there is a spiritual problem, and the root cause of everything goes back to spiritual issues. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. That's because you're scared of your own shadow. So what this first stage develops is an increasing terror about plagues and pandemics and disease which without the word, without biblical truth, uh, leads to fear, despair, sorrow, and depression. It summarizes it all as military conquest and theft of agricultural produce. Third, it points out that God will become Israel's enemy and sets himself against them. And fourth, fear and panic reign and the people flee, flee at imaginary threats. 
All of these destroy their peace and stability in the land. That's the point. They can't have a peaceful existence in the land God gave them unless they are going to responsibly live in the land by being obedient to the law. The second stage of, of discipline is Leviticus twenty six eighteen to 20. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So it intensifies it. You thought it was bad in that first cycle? Well, we're going to ratchet it up sevenfold, and you're really going to break it. God says, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. What is he saying there? If your heavens are like iron, there's no rain. It just looks like you're just looking at you're inside of a Dutch kettle, and you're looking at the iron lid on top, and nothing is getting through. So it's it's talking about a drought, and it's talking about a famine. Your heavens will be like iron and your earth like bronze. You're not going to grow anything. You're going to have a drought, and the land's going to be parched and hard. And your strength shall be spent in vain. You'll try everything you can to grow crops, but you're not going to grow anything. For your land, notice it's all about being in God's land. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Basically, to summarize it, there's a sevenfold intensification of divine discipline. Second, God will break their pride. Third, drought and famine will come. And fourth, no matter how much they try, their economic recovery will be in vain. God's in charge, not man. The third stage or cycle of discipline in Leviticus 26:21. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues, a second intensification sevenfold. I will also send wild beasts among you. What was the blessing? If you obey me, I'll pull the wild beasts out. If you disobey me, I'm going to put them back in. Isn't it interesting how we create our own self-induced misery because over the last 30 years or so, due to a lot of the left-wing ecological people who want to reintroduce these uh, ravaging carnivorous animals that attack cattle and attack sheep, that they're bringing wolves back into Montana and Wyoming and they're having a big problem with that. They're bringing bears back into areas that have been well populated by people. And, and when I was living up in, uh, up in Connecticut, uh, there was a lady in the church whose kids had just been playing in the backyard, and they came in the back door, and when she looked out her kitchen window, there was a, a brown bear in the backyard. And, this is the res- and we're bringing this on ourselves because we know better. So we summarize the third stage as another sevenfold intensification of divine discipline. There's a multiplication of carnivorous animals which will attack and destroy the children, will attack and destroy domestic livestock, and will take the lives of many people leaving the roads deserted because nobody wants to go out at night when they might be attacked. It's getting that way in Houston, but the ravenous beasts are illegals that have come up from the south. And I was talking to a neighbor uh, the other day who was telling me about various incidences that have happened uh, right around my house, around between the early hours of the morning, between midnight and 5, 
there have been a number of these gang members who are doing their initiation. They drive up and down Long Point and Westview and other streets, and they just shoot randomly at houses. And she talked to the police captain in charge of the precinct, and he said, well, the problem we've got is all these illegals uh, that have been coming into the country, they're joining up in gangs, and they want to um, they they want to gain territory in Spring Branch, so they're pushing their way in and they're doing these things. And I mentioned this from the pulpit before, about a, a little over a year ago, uh, there were a couple of kids who were uh, trying to steal a catalytic converter from a car about 100 yards from my house, and uh, the guy in the apartments down on Long Point came out, saw them, knew who owned the car. He was carrying a weapon. He pulled it and fired some shots. And so they had a shoot at five shots were fired. And he hit one of the kids who got in the car and tried to drive off and ended up wrecking the car. And it got out to run, dropped dead in the middle of Long Point. This city is turning into a hellhole. And it's turning into a hellhole because we've elected antinomian Democrat leaders. And until that changes, nothing will change. But this is God's judgment on this city because people have turned their back on law and turned their back on absolutes. So we then come to the fourth stage of divine discipline. And God says again, you keep doing this, then I'm going to punish you seven times for your sins. Another sevenfold intensification. This is getting pretty bad. Now it's going to involve military defeat and military invasion, but not necessarily deportation. So I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you're gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, so we've gone from famine in cycle two to cutting off bread in one oven. They shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So ten women shall break, bake your bread in one oven. That's because you don't have enough flour. So in the fourth stage, you have military defeat, as seen in each of the judges' cycles. You see an increase in disease and plague and pandemic. You see, as a result of those things, economic recession, depression, and collapse. And there's an increasing divorce from reality as seen in the increasing idolatry, worshiping false gods that are, in fact, demons. And that leads to the inability to make wise decisions or even rational decisions. And so you look at yourself in the mirror naked and you say, I'm of the opposite sex. And people are convinced that they can do that. We've lost touch with reality, and people who are leaders in business and leaders in government, have, when they lose touch with reality at this stage, they cannot pass just laws. It's impossible for a psychotic leftist who is divorced from reality by definition to be able to pass a just law. The fifth stage... Another sevenfold intensification of suffering. This is 11, 12 verses, so I'm just summarizing it. Parents will cannibalize their own children in order to survive. When they come under siege, they've run out of food, so they will kill and cook their own children for dinner. 
God will destroy their pagan altars and cast their lifeless carcasses on their idols. This happened in both uh, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., and it happened again in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. We have the records of that. Cities will be laid waste. Pagan temples will be destroyed in Leviticus 26.31. Their enemies will take over their land, and then they will be removed from the promised land and scattered among the nations. But there's always grace. There's the offer of grace, forgiveness, and restoration. God always gives them hope. Uh, Leviticus 26.40, But if they confess their sins, their iniquity, and the iniquity of the fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant With Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember, I will remember the land. And in verse 43 says, The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Like the statute that our president just signed into law, the Anti-Christian Marriage Destruction Act. And it just shows we're sliding down this same, same pattern of ancient Israel. Deuteronomy gives the same similar list of blessings in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 1 to 4. But I want you to look at verse 4. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, that when they are obedient to the law, then there will not be barren women. There will be an abundance of births and babies. They're not only human, but also their domestic animals, their sheep and their cattle, their goats. They will have an increase in the offspring of their flocks. If you go down to Deuteronomy 28.11, And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. See, it's all about how they live in the land that God that God gave them. And the promise also in verse 12 that God's going to give them rain in season and out of season. Goes through the various judgments. Verse 18, cursed shall be the fruit of your body. So that the, the sin and paganism is going to impact their birth rate uh, in Israel. And so you go down, I'm going to skip through some of these verses for time's sake. But you come to Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, and now you have the emphasis on the grace of God. It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. That's a promise. This is going to happen. So God says you may go through all of this uh, discipline, all this judgment, but eventually there'll be a generation that will turn back to me, and then I will bring them back, uh, back to the land. I heard a rabbi teach on this at one time, and he completely ignored the turning back to God. 
when he taught through this passage and tried to make this fit the current return of Jews to Israel, but just skipped verse 2. He goes on to say, If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you, because God's omnipotent. Jeremiah seven twenty three and 24, Jeremiah tells his generation, but this is what God commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. But it's volition, and volitional rejection of God. They did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts. That's the period of Judges and so many times after that. In Jeremiah 9.24, God says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising what? Loving kindness. See, God is not a, just a God of wrath. He is a God of wrath because he's a God of loving kindness. He's faithful to his covenant. That's what the Hebrew word emphasizes here, chesed. It is his faithful love to the people because he gave them the covenant. And this is exactly what is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12 by the writer of Hebrews. That uh, He quotes this from Proverbs 3. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. See, this is how God uh, governs us, that when we are disobedient, he loves us and he chastens us. He brings discipline into our lives to teach us. And that is something that liberals, those who've rejected Scripture, have separated, that a loving parent does not discipline their children. They're not going to spank their children. They're not going to teach their children. I mean discipline in the right biblical way. And so the result is that you raise spoiled brats who are self-absorbed and self-centered, and they will live lives that are self-destructive because their parents have failed in their responsibility. We are to imitate God. God loves us. And because he loves us, he disciplines us. And this is uh, critical. So what, we, what I've done tonight is to look at this overall scope of the Old Testament based on the Mosaic Law and the blessing and cursing to show that, that what we're reading in sort of miniature in the book of Judges with how God deals with their disobedience is sets a pattern. It foreshadows the various cycles throughout the next 500 years of Israel's history. They have times when they're obedient. There are times when God blesses them richly, as he did during the early years of uh, Solomon's reign, as he did during uh, the reigns of of uh, Josiah and the uh, the reigns of Hezekiah and the other uh, the other five or six in the um, in Judah, God blessed them richly. But when they turned to the in rebellion to the false gods and the demons to worship them, then God brought these judgments. So He's being true to His word. He it shouldn't have been a surprise. God laid it all out. They were supposed to have been taught this, but the priests failed. And we're going to see that in the chapters after after Samson. 
So next time we'll come back and we'll start into uh, Judges uh, chapter 13, specifically looking at this this final cycle that is described before um, in the in the next four chapters. Father, thank you for this opportunity to recognize that that judgment is part of your love. Divine discipline is part of your love to teach us, to train us, to pull us back from the horrors of disobedience to you and the consequences that that brings. And Father, we live in a nation that is, uh, it, 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 it does, in one sense it doesn't surprise us, but in another sense we are just stunned as how, how far and how fast we have declined over the last 30 years. And that the, the, the legislation that comes is openly hostile to biblical truth. And this is not our foundation. This is not the way this country was oriented uh, until the last 40 or 50 years. And, Father, we know that we're going to see more of this, that what we're seeing is your discipline on us. Uh, We're not going to be disciplined for these things. These things are the discipline on this nation for our rejection of you. But there's always grace. There's always the offer of salvation. There's always the opportunity to turn back to you and you always extend grace uh, to those who are disobedient and we stand in awe of your grace and your goodness to us and we pray that we as believers uh, cannot give in to mental attitude sins about what's going on around us but that we will continue to trust you we will continue to walk consistently with you that you may be glorified and that we may be a an effective witness for your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.